Okay, Mark chapter 5, we're going to just do uh, verses 18 through 20 tonight, or this morning. Last week we did uh, verses 1 through 20. If you were not here, um, we taught on demons and what demons uh, do and how they kind of could inhabit somebody and what that even looks like and Jesus' power over them and his authority over, over them. You can get that teaching online. And so we're just going to piggyback that uh, this morning in verses 18 through, 18 through 20. But I want to read the whole text because it's so vivid and awesome. And I want to read the entire thing to you, and, um, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into our, our text. So Mark chapter 5. Let's start at verse 1. And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the, of the Gerasenes. And, uh, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him a man in the tombs, with an unclean spirit, and he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched them apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran, and he fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged begged him earnestly to send him out of the country. And a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs and let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out into the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told the city and the country, and the people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were all afraid. And those who had seen it described, it, described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat. The man who was, who, who was possessed by demons begged him that he might be with them. Take me with you. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Let's pray. Lord, it is a marvel on what you can do to humanity, what you can do to a a person, how you can release them and free them, Lord. And I pray this morning, by the power of your word and the power of the gospel, that you would free us from the things that bind us, the things that hold us, the things that keep us down. I pray that you would free us and restore to our minds and to our hearts the joy of being saved. This man must have been so excited not to be naked and shackled anymore, but to be free. And he told everybody about you. And I know, Lord, in, especially in this city, people don't like it when we come at them with the truth they have to believe. And so I pray, Lord, that you would put on full display the renewal of Jesus Christ in our lives. That you would put it on full display for this whole city, this whole area, this, the whole Bay Area to see that Jesus restores, 
that you set things right, that your kingdom is advancing. Would you do this in our hearts this morning? I submit my mind and my heart to you, Lord. I ask that you would anoint me. It's, it's such a crazy task to teach your word. And I thank you for the privilege, and I pray, God, that you would humble me, that you would humble us. We submit to your word. Open our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so we've been in the book of Mark uh, since we started the church, and we've said that Mark is recounting for us, for everyone, the real story of Jesus, the, the story of the real Jesus. And we've been in the middle of this episode that started with Jesus teaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus was there teaching, and it got so packed, there was a crowd that got, that got to be so packed and almost violent that Jesus had to step out up from the shore onto a boat, and he was teaching, and he was teaching them in parables. And he said that the Word of God, the, the kingdom of God, the power of God is like a seed. It's like a small, vulnerable seed. Now, you would expect Jesus to explain the kingdom of God like a fire, like a hammer. The kingdom of God is like a hammer. And that would have that encouraged us. That would be like, yes, I serve a God whose kingdom is like a hammer. But Jesus like, the kingdom of God is like a seed. It's like a little seed. Now, to us, we're like, a seed? Why a seed? And sometimes, if you live in this, this part of the, the nation, in the San Francisco Bay Area, you kind of feel like the gospel is like a seed. It's vulnerable. It's open to the elements. And sometimes what you have to pray and what you pursue is the fact that the gospel is a seed, but inside the seed has the power to change everything. So Jesus is preaching this, and actually he's preaching this parable while showing this parable taking place. Because it says that he is on the sea, on a boat, standing or sitting on a boat on the sea, and the people are on the soil. And he's preaching the word to them, teaching them in parables. And the parable is that a sower sows seed on the soil. So what he's teaching is actually happening right then and there. That he is sowing the word of God, and all these people are there on the soil, and some hearts hear him and believe, some hearts reject him, some hearts get excited and then go home, and like, I can't handle this, my finances are too messed up, or I'm in love with this or that, I can't give up that for Jesus. And so it's happening. But then he says this, he tells his disciples, get in the boat, let's push off, let's go to the other side of the sea. Now, the other side of the Sea of Galilee was Gentile territory, territory that the Jews did not go to. But Jesus says, let's push off. And so that as they did, right in the middle of the night, Jesus is asleep on a cushion and a 25-foot boat and a hurricane kicks up. Because right above um, the Sea of Galilee is Mount, Mount Hermon. And it goes down and from Mount Hermon to the Sea of Galilee, there's like a 30,000-foot drop, and it drops down, and with that, it creates this hurricane-type wind. So the heat from Mount Hermon to the, or the heat of, of the Sea of Galilee to the cold of Mount Hermon just kicks up these hurricanes, these squalls, and that's what happened. And this hurricane kicked up, and the disciples, who were professional uh, mariners, said, we're going to die our boat is going to sink. And so they wake Jesus up and they say, do you not care that we are going to die? And Jesus sits up. It doesn't, Mark doesn't really tell us in the narrative what Jesus actually does. We know he doesn't take a stance. He doesn't get up and go, okay, here goes hurricane, let's on. He doesn't do that. He sits up and says, sit down and shut up to the hurricane. And then it does. And the hurricane goes, yes, I will. And so it's totally calm and still, and, 
And the disciples were afraid at first of the storm, but they're more afraid of Jesus at, at the end of the narrative, at the end of the story. They're more afraid of him. They're like, who is this that can calm the wind and the waves? Who is this in our boat? And then it says that they landed on the other side of the sea, and then Jesus steps out. It doesn't say the disciples stepped out, just Jesus. He steps out, and he meets this naked, chained demoniac who howls at the moon. I mean, it almost seems like a movie. And this is the story that we just read. This legion comes up to Jesus. And a legion was, uh, at this time, somewhere around five to 6,000 armed men. So Jesus goes, what is your name? And he goes, we're legion. We're five to 6,000 demonic enemy forces. He says, for we are many. And Jesus doesn't go, whoa, whoa. I didn't know I was dealing with so many. This is the same thing to him. With a word, he commands the demons to leave. And the demons do leave. And they try to negotiate. And in our, in our story, last week, Jesus encounters three different characters. He encounters evil spirits, whom he outfoxes. We talked about that last week. There's a comedy wrapped up in here. Mark loves to show uh, comedic irony. And there's a comedy there. He lets them go to the pigs, but the pigs jump off the cliff and die. And then there's this man, whom he heals. And then there's this community, whom he frightens. Each of these make a request. Every single one, every single uh, three different people he meets make requests. The demons beg Jesus to allow them to stay in the same country and send them to the pigs. The community begs Jesus to leave their country. And the man begs to be with him. Everybody is begging. And Jesus grants every request except the man's. He says yes to the demons and yes to the angry community, but no to this healed man. And what I want to do today is I want to deal with why Jesus said no to him. I mean, he's saying yes to demons. Can I go to the pigs? She's like, okay. And then the angry community, we don't like you. You scare us. Get out of our country. He's like, okay. And this man, oh, Jesus, I love you. You saved me. Can I be with you? He's like, no. Like, why would he say no to this man? Now, it's no great secret that the converted life The life that has been saved and changed by Jesus has this new purpose now. And everything it does, it's to testify of Jesus. Everything, if you are a believer and a follower of Jesus, your whole life should be one that testifies of Jesus. That's no great secret. To be on Christ's mission, to make converts, to use that word. To make converts. That is why we're here to convert people, or at least we want to. That's why we're here. Like people go, why are you guys here in this city? And we're like, and, and trying to be subversive, trying to be this, trying to be that. Let's just tell you straight out, we're here because we want to see people to believe in Jesus and to trust in Jesus for their salvation. We want Jesus to save people. The cat is out of the bag. That's why we're here. Now, I know that statement might be a little controversial in this town to say that. You might be thinking, you can't evangelize and you can't make converts. That's intolerant. That's proselytizing. You can't do that here. Believe what you want, but you can't insist that your way of believing is better than anyone else's way of believing. It's San Francisco, after all, the city of tolerance. When I first moved here, I read a a blog. I don't know if you've ever read a blog, but I read this blog, and it said one of the best things and the worst things about San Francisco is that there is never a bad idea. It's the best thing about San Francisco, and it's the worst thing about San Francisco. In an effort to remain tolerant, people go out of their way not to judge. He writes in his blog, if you said, hey, dude, 
I think I'm going to pierce my eyelids with a sliver of depleted uranium for Burning Man this year. Your friend would be like, right on, man. That's cool. And he writes, no, it's not cool at all. It's a very bad idea. But nobody would tell you that. Now, there's a pretty big majority inside the church and outside who think Christian evangelism or the church's mission to convert comes off as having somewhat of a superiority complex. Like Christians have all the right answers, they're superior, we have it all right and everyone else has it all wrong, and that is intolerant. When what the church should do in a city like this is it should be content with being just another spiritual option in the cornucopia that is world religion. You're just another option, dude, and just deal with that. That's what you should be, you should be content. Now, I agree that there are people who evangelize with a superiority complex, but that's their problem, not the message that they're preaching. It's their problem. If you preach the gospel with a superiority complex, that's your problem. That is not the gospel. See, the problem with that way of thinking, if you're in here, you're like, well, the church should not evangelize. People should not evangelize. You shouldn't proselytize. You shouldn't say that your belief is better than anyone else's belief. If you say that, that itself is a belief system. That itself is something you're trying to convert me to. It's a belief system that says this. It's all good. There is not only one way to God. Every way is a good way. You do not have a corner on truth. That is a belief system that you're trying to get me to convert to. You're trying to convert me to your way of thinking. And that is a very Western individualistic view. It's something that you want me to believe. So the problem is way deeper and much more complex than just saying you can't convert people. You can't have a corner on truth. And the reason why I bring this up is in this section right here, we see in Mark chapter 5, we see the making of the first evangelist. We see the making of the very first evangelist. And evangelism strikes up all these kinds of things in our minds. You might think of Ned Flanders or something like that when you think of an evangelist. Or you might think of like people that are just absolutely insane, people that you see on television, or people that you say yell, see yelling at people at certain parades or something in the city, just yelling, you're all going to burn, you're all going to go to hell. Some of you grew up in a church and now live in this city and would never use the word evangelism or evangelist. It just strikes up way too many weird arguments and endless debates. It just strikes up way too many weird moments. But some of you, are here and live here as evangelists. I meet somebody every single, almost every week. They live here, you move to the city to be a part of some ministry and you would say, I am an evangelist in this city. So what we need to do in this church is come to some sort of agreement on what we are all biblically talking about when we are, what we're all biblically called to. What we're all biblically called to be as witnesses, as people who, who want to see people come to know Christ, to come to know Jesus in this city. Because up to this point in Mark, Mark's narrative, there's been this secret messianic motif. Jesus heals people and says, shh, don't tell anybody. He does something, he heals a leper, he, 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 he touches somebody and he heals their hand or something else, and he goes, don't tell anybody. And this is the first time here that when he restored this demonized man, he said, you can't come with me, I want you to stay here in this town and tell everybody about me. Tell everybody that you know. Tell your friends, tell your workers, tell the people you live with, go home. Tell them what I've done for you and the mercy that I have shown you. And so what we see in this, in this, um, in this episode of Mark, in Mark chapter 5, 
is the making of the first missionary. And this is how we'll look at this section this morning. The, the pursuing nature of God, the sending nature of God, and the telling nature of the gospel. The pursuing nature of God, how God is pursuing, the sending nature of God, how God sends us, and then the telling nature of the gospel. So the first thing that you and I see in this story is that Jesus is a God who pursues. He pursues. Jesus crossed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee that was known as the Decapolis, the ten cities, Gentile territory. Jesus went across a tumultuous sea in order to go after this man who lived in the tombs, who cuts himself, who howls all day and all night, who is so strong that no one can tame him or bind him. And there's also pigs involved in the story. This is, a, we said last week, this is about as Jewishly unclean as you can get. This story is about as Jewishly unclean. It has unclean places, graveyards, unclean people, Gentiles, unclean animals, pigs, and unclean spirits, demons, a legion of demons. So here in this story is the total personification of uncleanness, brokenness, slavery, and evil. And what Mark is telling us, basically the totality, this is the totality of the human condition. And Jesus was on mission to pursue and to save this man. This man did not post an ad on Craigslist to find Jesus. He wasn't like man seeking savior. He did not do that. He was not seeking God at all. Jesus went after him. Jesus went after him on mission. And it's actually the encapsulation of Jesus' entire mission. Here, Jesus crossed a great divide to get to this man, from Jewish to Gentile territory, which is a pretty big deal. But to redeem humanity, Jesus crossed a greater divide, heaven to earth. In Eugene Peterson's The Message Translation Bible, he says this in John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and blood in Jesus and moved into the neighborhood. I love that translation. This is what Jesus has done. He, he crossed the divide from heaven to earth to save us. See, you did not, if you believe in Christ, you did not save yourself. God saved you. He pursued you or, you, or he pursued your parents, and therefore you grew up in a home that believed. And even there, he pursued you to a place of trust and dependence in him for your salvation. It wasn't by chance or accident that Jesus showed up on the shore to meet this demonized man. The storm didn't blow him here. He went there on purpose. And it wasn't by chance or accident that you attended a church or that you attended this church or that you heard the gospel of Jesus, that you have Christian acquaintances or friends or family, that you lived in a, grew up in a Christian home or that a Bible fell into your hands. I got saved reading the book of Job. Who does that? <laughs> I mean, I read the first two chapters of Job. I'm like, God, Satan, are they're something's being destroyed. I need Jesus. I have no idea. It was God pursuing me. Somebody bought me a Bible. I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing in my life. I look over, there's a Bible. I'm like, oh, a Bible. I'll turn it. And, you know, I don't, I've never, ever read the Bible before. So you start in the middle, right? Job. I thought it was Job. I was like, Job? I could use a Job. And I saw, boom. <laughs> Open it up, and then I get saved reading the book of Job. God pursues you're like, well, not me. I kind of grew up Christian. God pursued your parents or your grandparents, something, and he pursued you as well. God is a great initiator. 
God had lovingly pursued this man. It's not by chance or luck or accident that you saw your need of Christ and you came to trust in him as your Lord and your Savior. Jesus lovingly pursued you. Jesus lovingly and mercifully pursued this man, not to exploit him or condemn him, but to free him and to save him. John 3.17, not as popular as his neighbor John 3.16, but still really good. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came that not to condemn, but to save. Now, what this should do in our hearts, this pursuing nature of God, is give us great hope and great humility. Great hope, because if Jesus sailed across a sea to go after one man, and Jesus crossed the greatest divide known in the universe, heaven and earth, to save us, he can save anyone. Anyone. He can save anyone. If you live in this, uh, in this town, sometimes it gets real discouraging. Can God save anyone? God can save anybody. And you might be thinking of somebody right now. God can save them. And we have to pray like we believe this. God, open their eyes. God, pursue them with your love and your compassion. Save them. I mean, do you see, when you drive around the city, do you see people or do you see souls? Do you see people that believe this or believe that or live like this or live like that or they're this or they're that? Or do you see souls? I cannot help, but every time I drive around the city or walk around the city, I see people, I see souls that need Jesus. Sometimes it's overwhelming. I just can't handle it. Sometimes I get so much compassion where I want to go up and hold somebody, but that would be super weird. (laughs) So I don't, because that's weird. Just holding them, I'm a pastor at a church and I love you. (laughs) But do you see that when you walk around this city? Like souls that need Jesus. Or have become so like just jaded, like whatever. We need this sort of compassion, this sort of love. And there's a great debate within the church, and we're not going to solve it ever, but whatever. There's a great debate within the church whether God is totally sovereign in saving a soul or man is totally responsible to turn to God. Is it the sovereignty of God or the responsibility of humanity? And the Bible says, yes. Yes, God is totally sovereign, and yes, man is responsible. And there's a tension there that you cannot solve on purpose. And J.I. Packer had this great quote on the subject as it pertains to evangelism. He says this. On our feet, we may have arguments about it, but on our knees, we are all agreed. On our feet, we can argue back and forth. Humanity, it's sovereignty, humanity, responsibility, all these different things. Free will, predestination, whatever. But on our knees, we are all agreed. God saves. Everyone, they fall on their knees, prays, God, open up my friend's eyes to see you. God, open up their hearts. God, pursue them and love them and show them your love. Now, the pursuing nature of God should bring us to great hope for our cities and our family and our workplaces, but it should also bring us great humility. Humility because we did nothing to deserve it. You did nothing to deserve the grace of God. There is no room for pride in Christianity and no room for pride in our evangelism. No room for pride at all. The gospel says you are so flawed and so screwed up and so broken that Jesus had to die for you, all of us. He had to die for me and you, and we all need Jesus. See, the Legion story 
records in vivid detail what is true of all of us by nature. This Legion story is actually just a picture of all of us by nature. We are all slaves to evil. We are all not free, even though we try to be free. We are all bent, ultimately, on self-destruction, and neither we ourselves or others are capable of breaking the powers which have bound us. Christ alone has the power of, to break sin and evil in our lives, of satanic oppression, even demonization. He has the power to set us free, and Christ has pursued us. Therefore, listen here, listen, therefore, you're not a Christian because you have a better life. You're not a Christian because you have better belief. You're not a Christian because you have better orientation. You are a Christian because Jesus pursued you and saved you and died for you, and you trusted in Christ for your salvation. The pursuing nature of God should absolutely humble you. Absolutely humble you. So when you begin to to love people and evangelize and share Jesus, you don't come from a stance that I'm better, I have a more superior anything. I needed to be died for just like you did. I needed Jesus just like you do. It should humble us. The second thing that we see here is the sending nature of God, how Jesus now sends us. Now look at verses 18 through 20. Because not only did Jesus pursue this man, he also sent him. Verse 18, and he was getting into the boat, and the man who'd been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. He's like, Jesus, I, and you can imagine why he wanted to be with him. I mean, this guy was like just 15 minutes ago naked and chained and demonic, and now he's has clothes on, and he's in his right mind, and people are walking up to him like, Jimmy, how are you? He's like, I feel great. Can I have something to eat or something? And he wants to go with Jesus. But Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now, there is always both this centrifugal and centripetal action with God. Centrifugal and centripetal at the same time. This centrifugal it draws us radically in. Jesus draws us radically into himself. This is always the case. Jesus draws us into the source. This man was sensing this need to be with Jesus. I want to be near him. I want to be close to him. It was like this drawing nature. He actually even said, I want to be with you. It's actually the same language used of discipleship. When Jesus, in chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus called disciples to himself that they would be with him and that he would send them out to preach. So that there is this centrifugal action, but there's also centripetal force. God calls us radically in to send us radically out. That's what God does. He draws us radically to himself, and he sends us radically out. This is what he did to this man. He draws him in, and then he sends him out. And we also can't ignore this fact that Jesus told this man no. He walked, up to, he walked up to Jesus, can I go with you? And Jesus said, no, you can't. He tells him no for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of his friends and his neighbors who need to hear about Jesus and what he's done and the mercy he has shown him. Jesus says no. Sometimes the reason God says no to us is because there's a bigger yes around the corner. Jesus is going to say yes to something bigger than being with him. It's to go and tell your friends. There is something that God is doing and will do for the sake of the gospel. If you've ever been told no by God, there's a good reason. I remember 
several, probably two to three years before I moved from my hometown to start the process of beginning and being a part of this church plant. I wanted, I didn't even know where it came from. There was something in me. I wanted so badly to start a church. And I asked God, God, can I go start a church? And I even would point out where. God, can I start one there? And God would go, no, you can't. Well, can I go there? No, you can't. Well, can I go there? No, you can't. I remember hearing no all the time and getting so bummed, like, that is so noble of me to ask you to plant a church. Why wouldn't you say yes? It's not like I'm asking God, can I have a Ferrari? If you said no to that, I understand that. But no to church planting? Who? Why would you say no to such a noble request, God? Why would Jesus say no? Can I be with you, Jesus? No. What? Why no? I want to be with you. Isn't that noble? Isn't that good? He said no, no, no. Until I met some friends with reality and God said yes. And I understood at that moment why God had me wait for the sake of the gospel. And there's certain things, God, and you have to understand this, and you have to drill this into your head. God will say no for the sake of the gospel. There are times when God will say no to you. Can I have this? Can I go there? Can I do this? No. And the first reaction we have is, you hate me, God. Why do you hate me? I mean, can you imagine this man? Jesus, can I be with you? No. Why do you hate me? You just freed me and put clothes on me. Why would you hate me? There is, a, there is a bigger thing that, that Jesus was having him do. And the re- reason Jesus said no to him was to send him back into his context to his own people to proclaim Jesus. I'm sending you back to proclaim what I have done for you. And this man was not just to tell people about the miracle that had happened to him. He, they weren't, he wasn't just to go up and go, oh, I was, I was enslaved, now I'm free. He was to tell them what the miracle means. It means that God is at work beginning renewal. He's making all things new. Jesus is pursuing and restoring. He's setting things right. He's going around showing mercy and grace. He says, tell them the things that I I have done for you and the grace I have shown you. He didn't say, hey, tell them that you're a demon and now now you're not. Tell them why. Tell them what happened. This man was given a brand new worldview. His worldview changed. And he was to tell and to live in a different story. This is so huge. He was to live embodying a different story. Now, we all know that we are to proclaim Jesus where we work and where we live. But let's be totally honest. We have no idea what that means. I mean, does that mean I answer the phone by saying, Jesus loves you? Hi, this is Dave. Like, I'm I'm on mission. Or like, in your emails, you have the tagline at the end, for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, have a nice day, Dave, or whatever. Is that like how you live for Jesus on mission, it means this. It means that you embody, you live, and you start to tell a different story. You tell the story of how we are all broken, how we are all of us sexually broken, relationally broken. We all have idols and things we look to to functionally save us, all of us. And Jesus didn't leave this man with rules. He didn't say, okay, I want you to go everywhere and tell everybody about the Ten Commandments because they're all Gentiles. They have no idea what they're doing. Tell them about the Ten Commandments. He didn't leave them with the rules. He left them with a story. And this is the story. You were bound and naked and looked like you were from the set of the thriller video. And you were set free by Jesus. You were set free. You were demonized, but Christ has set you free. However, Christians are the most 
notoriously known for pushing their rules and morals on people and on cities and on nations. Our evangelism takes the form of turn or burn, stop sinning, get right or get left. But ironically, ironically, a, st- a study a couple years ago uh, showed this, and it's on the screen. Born-again believers are just as likely as non-Christians to view pornography, steal, physically fight or abuse someone, tell a lie, seek revenge, trash talk, get drunk, use drugs, and consult a medium or a psychic. So when you add these two things together, the fact that we are known to pushing morality, you can't do this, do that, live this way, believe like this, but then we live this way, you see why. There's no wonder why the first thing that pops into most people's mind when they think of Christian is hypocrite. We preach morals that we ourselves can't live by. Now, a lot of us knowing this go to two extremes when it comes to evangelism. Because we know this, we don't evangelize at all. Because if I do start telling people about Jesus, they're going to start looking at my life and see how screwed up and how much of a hypocrite I am. Therefore, I'll keep my religion private. Thank you very much. We do that. Or we become moralists. We do everything we can to show everyone around us how moral and how perfect we are. And when we are not and we screw up, we do everything we can to hide it. But there is a third way. Look at the way, look at what Jesus told this man and how he told him to live. He said, stay here and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. This is the gospel. This is the third way to start to live This is a third way to start to evangelize, to live and to tell the gospel. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you. He wasn't to tell them the great things he did for God. Jesus said, tell them the great things you did for me. Well, first of all, there was none at that point. Like, what can he say? I stayed for you. That was the only thing he had going on his resume. But tell the great things I have done for you. And when you start to tell people and live out like what you've done for God, that's moralism. But this is how Jesus saved me. That's how we're to live. This is the mercy he has shown to me. That is the gospel. Not what I've done for God, but what he has done for me. And when we start to live this way and embody this and live this way at work and at home and in our neighborhoods, the gospel frees us and empowers us in witnessing. Especially when it comes to how we suffer or what happens when we fail. Because a lot of us in this room fail from time to time. And a lot of us in this room might be suffering. And if you base your life on what you do for God rather than what God has done for you, if you live your life, this is what I do for God rather than the gospel, what God has done for me, when you suffer or you fail or God says no to you, it will spiral you down into bitterness, despair, and maybe even self-hatred. And the reason why this happens is because you think God owes you something. You start living like what I do for God. God owes me a good and happy life. God owes this to me. I've served God for X amount of years. I've been good. I've said my prayers. I've invited people to church. I lived better than other people. God owes me. And when suffering comes, you can't take it at all. You get bitter and angry at God. And when you fail, you beat yourself up. And when God says no, you get very, very angry. You can't say no to me, God. You know how long I've served you? You know what I've given up for you? You owe me, God. And we start living that way. 
your focus at that point is no longer on the gospel, what God has done for you. It's on religion, what you have done for God. Or if you're mad at God, if you're not mad at God, you're probably mad at yourself. You've probably done this as well, where you've made a mistake, you've messed up, and you cannot shake the thought of, I deserve this suffering. And the reason why I deserve this suffering is because I knew I should have lived a certain way and I didn't. I knew I should have lived this way and I, and I, I should have been better at this. I broke my own standards. Therefore, I deserve what's going on with me. So it vacillates between I hate thee and I hate me. I hate God or I hate myself. It goes back and forth, back and forth. This is why we need the gospel to free us. The gospel frees us. What Jesus has done for you frees us because I'm not saved by my moral record. I'm saved by Christ's record, what he has done for me. And I was accepted by grace, not only despite my shortcomings, sins, and my flaws, but because I was willing to admit them. And when we live a transparent Christian life, when we admit our flaws and we admit our fault, but we point to Jesus, but Jesus has redeemed me. Jesus has gracefully saved me, and you confess and turn to God. This is how the gospel frees you, even in regards to forgiveness. I mean, do you think this man went up to everyone who tried to put chains on him and said, I hate you, and I want my revenge? I know you that tried to put chains on me, but I broke them, remember, because I'm awesome. I'm going to get back at you, and I'm going to ruin you. He didn't do that. How could he do that? He was told to show what Christ did for him and the mercy Christ has shown toward him. The mercy. How can you be shown mercy and not show mercy? How can you hold a grudge and hatred and be bitter at people when Christ has forgiven you of so much? The gospel frees you. When you look at yourself and you go, look, look at all that Christ has done for me. It frees you to love people. It frees you to witness. It frees you to forgive. It frees you. So Jesus set him, sent him to where he lived to put on the renewal, put the renewal of God on full display. Go and show everyone what it looks like to be renewed by Jesus. And lastly, the telling nature of the gospel. The telling nature. He told him to tell. You know, every single one of you, every single one of us is an evangelist. We're all trying to convert someone to something. You might be a fashion evangelist, and you are trying to save people from fashion faux pas. You're like, listen, don't ever wear that again. I am your savior, and don't do that again. I saw you, and it was bad, and you might even try to save them before they leave the house. Don't leave the house with that on. I am your Messiah, your fashion Messiah. Come to save you. Or you might be a food evangelist, also known as foodies. And you're trying to save the world from eating crappy food. Like, I want to save the world. You might, the gospel of broccoli or something. Organic local broccoli. <laughs> Bought at farmer's markets. Only certain ones. And you're like, you're this food evangelist telling everybody eat this way and think this way about food and do this. Everybody, or your favorite band or your favorite movie. Something that you love to tell people about. Every single one of you is an evangelist. And I love just sitting down and talking with people and then finding what, they, what their gospel is, like their favorite thing to talk about. And you get them going, and they will try to convert you, start thinking this way about this man, listen to this band man, listen to this, do this, eat this. And everyone does this. We, it's like we can't even really fully experience something until we told somebody about it. I was sick a couple weeks ago. And I was on uh, NyQuil and antibiotics, which is not a really good combination. And it gives you freaky dreams. 
And so I had this dream. I don't know if I should be sharing dreams in here, but whatever. It makes a point. I had this dream that I was with this giant crowd of people, and the sun was setting, and it was weird. It was like, we're, I can see it in my mind. I can't really explain it. Anyway, we're all these people, and from these, this giant crowd of people emerged Jack Bauer. <laughs> I had no idea what he was doing there, and he was walking right up to me, and I'm like, oh my gosh. And he pulled out of his little man satchel thing that he always carries around. I thought it was going to be a bomb or something. Pulls out the next generation iPhone, and he gives it to me. And I grab it, and he goes, this is yours. I'm like, oh my gosh. The whole thing I was thinking consciously or subconsciously, I don't really know how that works. I was thinking, I I can't wait to tweet this. I can't wait to tell somebody about this right here. I can't, and that's what I was thinking in my dream. I'm I'm gonna tell, what am I gonna say? I'm gonna say Jack Bauer gave me the new iPhone. And I'm gonna tell like Gizmodo and all these other places about this, and it's gonna be awesome. Like there's, and I woke up thinking, "Did did that happen? I'm like, now, I do that because this is how everything is like completed. When, when we love something, we tell somebody about it, always. That is the nature of good news. That is the nature of it. We want to tell somebody about it. And this is what happens. And this is the, the, the telling nature of the gospel. We are to tell people about this good news. This ex-demonized man was, extru- was sent to tell, and he was probably so excited He was so excited to tell people, do you remember me? I've been saved. Do you remember my life? Do you remember what I valued? Do you remember what I did? Do you remember how I howled? Do you remember how I cut myself? I've been delivered by Jesus. You and I are good newsers. Romans chapter 10 verse 14 says this. How then will they hear? How then will they call on him who they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not ever heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. People, there are people, a lot of people that you live around that have never heard the gospel. Don't fool yourself in thinking, well, we live in America, everybody has heard the gospel. No. And if they have, probably not the real gospel. What Jesus has done for us what he has done for us. You and I are sent people to tell people about the gospel. You and I are witnesses to display both how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you at home, at work, in your community. You and I are good newsers to tell the gospel not as advice but as news, something that was done for us. Now, we are not to preach advice, not that here's how you get your best life now or here's how you clean up your act. It's not advice about what we must do to reach God. You need to come to church and say this and do that. It's news, not advice. We don't achieve this salvation. We accept it. It's been done for us by Jesus. And this man who had a legion of demons could not save himself And neither can we. We cannot save ourselves. We are not capable of breaking the powers which have bound us. Christ alone has the power to break sin and evil in our lives. He has the power to set us free. And he has. Some of us, he has set us free. So you and I, our call is to live and to tell that story in a way that we live it, that we tell it, that we preach it if need be, but we are to embody the gospel in our context.
Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for sending us, Lord, that you've empowered us. I, and I ask, God, that you would break the, that, that myth that a lot of us have, that there's, first of all, it's, our evangelism in the city can't be effective. Lord, it's the power of, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We believe that. Would you break the lie that says we, we, we have no place, we're not allowed to? And would you also break the lie, Lord, that we are just hypocrites, so why even open our mouths? Thank you for the gospel that frees us. Would you empower us with the gospel to live it, to tell about it, to tell about the things that you have done in our lives, Lord? Thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.